APU. American Public University is proud to present the following podcast. Welcome to today's Conversations with Faculty for the School of Arts and Humanities. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're going to talk to Dr. Jonathan Suravel about social media and ethics. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. So the first thing you say, you claim that using social media is overall bad for us. What's your argument for this claim? Well, I appeal to philosophical views on well-being. The simplest view and the view that works easiest with my argument is the view that well-being is happiness, that how well our life is going. Over the last five, six years, it's become increasingly clear that social media makes us less happy. And there are sort of different ways of measuring happiness, but actually we come out less happy the more social media we use on uh, all measures of happiness. There are two main ways that social media seems to reduce our happiness. So one of the big ones, and I imagine many of our listeners are familiar with this, is it creates these feelings of envy, these negative interpersonal comparisons. There's something about social media that leads us to talk about ourselves a whole lot. So about 80% of social media communications are about oneself as somebody talking about themselves. In face-to-face conversations, that's probably closer to 40%. And so what happens is we get this news feed full of information about our friends going on nice vacations, getting married, having really cute, happy kids, getting promotions. Their lives are just going great. And we compare ourselves to that and we don't measure up because of what gets selected for and what people share. And that makes us feel worse. So there's actually a pretty significant negative effect of that on happiness. Another thing that's been observed to happen is that people, after using social media, tend to feel that they wasted their time meaninglessly, and this makes them feel less happy in a certain sense. So if we're starting with the sort of hedonistic kind of view that well-being is happiness or pleasure, it's fairly straightforward to show that social media makes us worse off. In some research that I'm currently working on, I also see what we get if we look at another view of well-being. This is a view that I associate with the late Derek Parfit, who died recently. And he called this a list theory, or he talked about objective list theories of well-being. So the idea that there's no one single thing that determines how well off we are, how good our life is. There's sort of a cluster of heterogeneous factors For example, fulfilling your potential, doing meaningful things. Happiness might go on the list as well. According to one study, uh, this was a 2018 article by Huang, social media use is negatively correlated with academic achievement. And it's pretty clear that the reason is, it's not that people are sort of making an informed decision Am I better off sacrificing a little bit of my GPA to have better relationships or something? No, they're just procrastinating because actually the same thing that's making them do worse in school is giving them higher stress levels, which is an indication that they're procrastinating and they're aware of the fact that they're procrastinating. They can't tear themselves away from social media. So developing your talents. Autonomy is, I think, something that's plausibly part of a good life right? Sort of making your own informed decisions. We might get into this later, but I think social media actually, in a sense, reduces our autonomy by habituating us, by sort of training us into this automatic 
kind of usage of the platforms, automatic and uncontrolled. Just to give you an example, I've um, resolved many times over the last few years to stop checking my phone first thing in the morning. But I keep checking my phone first thing in the morning. So what's gone on here is that I've been essentially trained by the platform to keep checking regardless of my desires, regardless of my values, regardless of my intentions. And so I see that as a diminution of my autonomy, my sort of freedom to choose what I do with my time. So there are two sort of things that might go on this list if you have a list view of well-being, these heterogeneous factors. Those two go against the idea that social media is good for well-being. Those two both suggest that social media reduces our well-being. Now, I have to say this. If we're working with that view of well-being, things are complicated because some people will, I think, say that friendships make us better off, or let me put it this way, that friendships have a kind of intrinsic effect on our well-being, meaning it's not just that friendships make us happier, and that's why they're good for us, but a, a true friendship, it makes our life better even if it doesn't increase our happiness. That's a view that's out there. Some people are sort of so accustomed to thinking about well-being in terms of pleasure or happiness that can be hard to wrap your head around, but, but that's a view you could take. That could be something that goes on the list, friendships. I think the overall picture here is that most likely social media overall reduces well-being, but because of this effect on friendship, there's some room for some degree of doubt. So one of the things you claim is that you should deactivate your social media accounts to avoid habituating. Another thing you say is that there's responsible use of social media for that. So how do you talk about, well, deactivating social media, but still connecting with friends? How is there a way to do that? Yeah. So what I advocate in my um, Quillette article on deactivation well, what I advocate is deactivation from social media. So if you deactivate from Facebook, you're not deleting your account and getting rid of all of it once and for all. You're sort of putting it on pause and you can still use the messenger function on your phone with your Facebook contacts. I assume that other social media have similar options for deactivation. Now, the research on the benefits of social media, like I, I was just talking about how there are benefits and uh, disadvantages to social media. The major benefit being keeping you tied to your friends, especially your friends that you're not super close with, right? Do you need social media to stay in touch with your siblings? Many of us don't, but do you need social media to stay in touch with a pretty good college friend? Maybe, maybe you wouldn't take the time. Social media makes it a little easier. So two things about that. I think you can get a lot of those benefits with the direct messaging app. It does make it a lot easier to stay in touch with your sort of non-best friends, just like social media. Secondly, a lot of the observed benefits of interacting on social media have to do with direct targeted communications as opposed to broadcast posts, right? So a broadcast post is a post that's automatically shared with everybody in your network. So like, I just got promoted and you tell everybody you know all at once. Various people will get it in their news feeds. Rather than sending somebody a direct message, uh, posting on one specific person's timeline. So it's the direct targeted posts that seem to provide some benefit, social benefits and, and psychological benefits, uh, benefits to well-being, to happiness. And that I would claim you can do without the full social media functionality. You don't need a news feed. 
the newsfeed and the timeline are basically what you're getting rid of when you deactivate. And I think that leaves you most, almost all of what's good about social media. So that's why I recommend, what I argue for is deactivation. Would you say that all those social media platforms have had a kind of a timeline? They came out, there's a lot of excitement, and now they were really looking at the effects, the full effects on people, say both emotionally and socially connecting, but then not connecting. Yeah, I would agree with that. So social media have changed a lot over the years, and the uh, results of the research have changed as well. Now, I think in the early days of social media, there was less research about it and the research was less advanced in various ways. The methodologies have really improved in the last six years or so. Now, if we look at the introduction of the like button, for example, even the introduction of the news feed, right? There was a time when social media platforms had none of these things. When Facebook was first introduced, it was basically your profile and... Uh, you could directly message people, you could post on their profiles. It was a lot more focused on these kinds of direct targeted communications. And that early research was more clear cut about the social benefits and actually the broader psychological benefits of social media. The research has become increasingly negative about social media. And that does seem to correspond to these changes in the functions, the like button and the newsfeed. Excellent. We're talking a lot about, it seems like, how people react and the concept of happiness. And so at this point, uh, we're going to take a break as we're talking to Dr. Jonathan Suravel, and we'll be right back. Today's corporate world requires talented professionals who quickly rise to meet business needs on a global scale. At American Public University, we'll teach you how to meet the needs of domestic or international businesses. Take the next step and apply online at study at apu.com. And we're back with uh, Dr. Jonathan Suravel. And so we've been talking a lot about social media ethics, happiness. And so you focused on the mental health aspect of social media. What about the social and political aspects? Social media can empower ordinary people, as we see from the hashtag movement such as B2. Might that be the cost of living with lower happiness? Yeah. So I don't necessarily recommend that everybody deactivate their accounts. There probably are some people out there who can bring about positive political change or contribute to it through their use of social media. I think that the number of people who can actually do that is going to be very small. And um, so I hope not too many people will seize on that as sort of kid themselves like, well, that's why I want to keep using it. There are a couple of issues about social media's effect on politics. So number one, we should keep in mind that social media is just sort of a political tool. And so I don't know that it can be said to have an overall good effect or bad effect on politics. It sort of depends on who uses the tool better, the forces of good or the forces of evil, so to speak, if we want to think of politics in those terms. So maybe social media was important to the Me Too movement. It was also very likely important to Trump's election. So I would say that wherever you stand on the political spectrum, you're going to be able to point to some development that you find extremely unwelcome, and that was facilitated by social media. So the point is, is there any perspective from which social media has an overall good effect on politics? I'm skeptical. I haven't seen anybody sort of persuasively make that argument. Again, it's a tool that all different sides of the political spectrum can use. I do think there is a kind of 
nonpartisan sense in which social media has had an extremely negative effect on politics. Nonpartisan in the sense that I think that people of any political persuasion can see the downside here. And so there's a psychologist, uh, MJ Crockett, who's done great research on this. You can easily get the impression that politics is increasingly driven by a sense of outrage at the other side. Each side of the aisle is pointing to the worst excesses of the other side and trying to get their base outraged. Crockett has done some very interesting research on the evolution, the psychology, and the effects of outrage and how social media contributes to outrage. And so what social media has done is create an environment where outrage functions very differently from how it functioned for our evolutionary ancestors. So outrage is really, according to, um, to Crockett, it was originally meant to be this rare kind of last resort emotion that you use when some member of the tribe steps way over the line, right? The person who you express outrage towards can fight back, okay? So you only express outrage if you're willing to fight about it. Social media has totally reversed those incentive structures. Now it's not a difficult cost-benefit analysis that you make before expressing outrage. It's sort of a benefit analysis, right? Expressions of outrage are one of the best ways to get thumbs up or likes or uh, retweets. So social media has incentivized. You don't have to risk the person you express outrage against fighting back against you. So it's all advantage and no disadvantage to moral outrage. And that's why it's that emotion in the political context, right? So it's often in regards to politics that people are bringing up outrage. It's become so commonplace. We probably take it for granted now. Maybe we've gotten used to it. But a lot of us go through our days feeling outraged a significant percent of the time, feeling sort of moral outrage about the other side. So Crockett is worried that now we're sort of habitually outraged. It's become a, a habit. We seek it out. We want to find out what's going to be the outrageous thing so-and-so did today. And this is really driving our politics. So can some people bring about political benefits? Can they bring about positive political change through social media? Yes, there are a few people out there who can do that. But having a society where politics is conducted to such a large extent and, and is driven to such a large extent through social media has some massive costs and very likely, I think, makes it harder to solve problems through politics. One of my observations is when I have conversations with people locally, here and where I live, very rarely is anybody outraged. If I have 100 conversations, honestly, 99 of them are going to be great. And only one of them is going to be like where somebody is so stuck on an issue that they are outraged. So how do we get people to focus on like local conversations and having that civility in conversations versus paying attention to all the chatter and the outrage that's on the national level? Great question. I wish I knew the answer. So I do think deactivating from social media might help. Like I say, I don't think social media is the only contributor to this phenomenon. In fact, I don't think the internet is the only contributor. So if we go off social media, there's still cable news, which plays a huge role in political polarization, in my view. So we might want to try to avoid all those things that contribute to it. That's not an easy thing to do. Beyond that, strengthening our critical thinking skills, I think, can probably help. 
critical thinking in the sense of being able to sort of keep track of what evidence supports what when somebody gives some reasoning for a contention, some reasoning for a policy proposal, let's say, being able to kind of really break down what their reasoning is. There's some early research on what's called debiasing and how that can be incorporated into education. So there's some promising early research there. One other thing I'll throw out there that's probably a little more speculative, but that I think is worth investigating, and there's sort of there are theoretical reasons to think this might help, meditation and mindfulness. So there's a, a writer, Robert Wright, who takes this view, who really focuses on the potential of meditation to help with politics. One idea that's going on there is that meditation might strengthen your ability to kind of intentionally direct your attention into the present moment and allow you to kind of choose what kind of reaction you'll have. And that can be especially useful in sort of fight or flight type of situations. You're in a fight with somebody do you want to sort of crumple up and give in or run away or just kind of lash out and fight back? If you can strengthen your ability to refocus in the moment and choose a response to what's happening to you, there's some reason to think that that might help you choose more sort of measured and rational responses to what people are saying, including opening your mind to the possibility that they might be right and you might be wrong. Uh, that's always the hardest thing to do in political discussions. I mean, if we could get to the point where we don't respond with anger, that would be progress. If we can go further and uh, participate in politics with open minds, it seems to me that would be even better. So here's a question. Is there a social media platform you recommend that doesn't come with as much baggage? So Facebook, Twitter, I think there's a lot there. Uh, would you recommend people be on Instagram because it's more visual literacy? Or do you believe that something else could be developed that will help with information flow, but at the same time, consuming information is really an individual's responsibility? Ah, so there are a few things there. Let me start with the individual responsibility part. When I discuss this topic with my students, this is a very common response I get. When people aren't persuaded by my argument for deactivation, it's usually because they think, oh, those people who are made worse off by social media they're abusing it. They're going overboard. They're getting obsessed, spending too much time. That's their fault. There's nothing wrong with social media. So that's how I'm hearing your question about the responsibility of the users. I don't think this is a productive view of human behavior. And I don't think it's very informed by what we now know about psychology and neuroscience. So there just are a lot of behaviors that are to varying degrees beyond people's control. Food is, is a common one. People who have sort of unhealthy food habits and who are eating themselves into an early grave. To just tell them, eat less, be stronger willed, it just doesn't work. A lot of behavior is very automatic. We've evolved the ability to have pathways built into our brain that go right past the executive part of the brain, the part of the brain involved in rational decision making. A lot of behavior just bypasses that whole kind of thought. And as it turns out, social media is sort of designed to do just that. It's designed to habituate us. That's something I was talking about earlier. And that's something that I think uh, reduces our autonomy. But now the point is, once someone has been habituated to do something, 
right? When the behavior has become automatic and relatively without their control, I don't think it makes psychological or neuroscientific sense to just tell them to try harder, right? That's just telling them to go against their biology. So I think there's a moral obligation that each of us has to not contribute to our friend's bad habits, right? If I have a friend who smokes, I'm not going to buy him cigarettes. I'm not going to leave cigarettes in front of him or in his house or something like that. So similarly, I think each of us shouldn't contribute to our friend's social media habits by interacting with our friends on social media. And so I think that's our responsibility. We shouldn't leave it on our friends to, right? We shouldn't say, I'm just going to leave this cigarette lying around. Use your willpower to not smoke it. You know, if I have a friend who's trying to quit smoking. So what I would like to see ultimately is for tech companies to just get rid of the newsfeed, get rid of the like function, let people make that effort to reach out to each other and send each other direct and targeted communications. That's where social media is at its best. So here is the multi-billion dollar question. Is it the responsibility of the government to then regulate these companies that are multi-billion dollar companies and extremely influential and of course donate to every political party out there? And then finally, with your background in teaching philosophy, how do you apply these lessons into your classroom? I'll start with the question about regulation. One thing that might be worth considering is um, some kind of age requirement for using social media. I think there are probably additional downsides to social media for adolescents, for less than fully developed brains and minds, downsides that go beyond just sort of the decreased happiness. So I worry that there are long-term developmental problems that can result from social media. There are plenty of studies showing that you know excessive screen time reduces children's and adolescents' social skills. I think there are like serious developmental concerns. And I'm not saying that all screen time is bad. There are educational programs. There's stuff you can do with a computer that can be good for learning. Sometimes I hear people saying, oh, when you're on social media, you're learning these valuable 21st century tech skills. And I have to say, I, I think that's rationalization. I don't buy it. Yes, learning about tech might be a good idea, sacrificing long-term social skills for whatever skills people supposedly get using social media as teenagers. I'm not convinced. So that, that could be something to explore. By the way, this is something Jonathan Haidt has talked about, who's a, a psychologist at New York University. He argues that depression and suicide rates for the youngest generation of college students and adolescents have skyrocketed. And one reason why is that bullying on social media is a really severe problem, a really serious problem for adolescents, especially adolescent girls. I think an age requirement is worth considering. Beyond that, there are no regulations that I would recommend at this point, but it's something to think about. So connecting it to teaching, well, in our uh, intro course at APUS, we discuss hedonism. Hedonism is a sort of a part of utilitarianism. So let me unpack those two terms. Utilitarianism is the view that the morally right action in any context is the action that of the available options would produce the most total pleasure in the long run. And that view of morally right action, so the right action being the one that produces the most pleasure, the most pleasure for everyone, for the entire universe. When we're adopting the moral point of view, we should concern ourselves with everyone. We should be sort of impartial. 
the moral point of view is not just caring about yourself. But utilitarianism includes hedonism, what philosophers call ethical hedonism, in the sense that the reason utilitarians say that it's pleasure that should be maximized through every action is that they think that pleasure is well-being. So that view of pleasure is something that I think has been clarified. Like a lot of students, when they learn about hedonism, they say, well, a big problem with this view is that it's really hard to measure pleasure. How do you know whether one thing produces more pleasure than another? And maybe social media is a tough case like this, where without the scientific research, it'd be hard to say. I get birthday wishes from my friends when I'm on Facebook, and that makes me happy. That gives me pleasure. On the other hand, yeah, every now and then I feel bad when I see somebody doing better than me in some respect. So would deactivating give me more pleasure? Would staying on the platform give me more pleasure? Some people say this focus on pleasure isn't very useful because it's so hard to measure. Well, psychologists have made a lot of progress defining measurable concepts of pleasure. So the big one is uh, affective well-being. If you wanted to look it up in the psychological literature, that would be the thing to look for. And so now we can apply that philosophical view, hedonism, to social media. And we can ask from the hedonistic perspective, the view that pleasure is what counts, does social media make us better off or not? And so, like I say, my reading of the research is that it does not increase pleasure. In fact, it reduces it fairly significantly. There's so much to think about and so much research, honestly, to be done. It seems like there's a lot of potential collaboration between philosophy and psychology, honestly. Absolutely. And psychology, neuroscience, anthropology, maybe even, I haven't seen this yet, but it would be interesting to see philosophers collaborate with software engineers on reforming these platforms, making them more moral. No, I agree. And social media ethics, ethics in general, is such an important topic for everybody, especially when you're going to school, when you're out of school, when you're at your place of work. What is ethics? How do we apply an ethical framework to what we do? And uh, looking at social media and the ethics is extremely important, not only for adults, but as you said, especially for younger kids. It's part of the development that we all <laughs> went through. And honestly, the younger generation is having to deal with a lot more than we ever did. Indeed. So, well, thank you, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. Excellent. And um, if you uh, want to find out more about American Public University System, feel free to go to apus.edu. And again, today we were talking about social media ethics with Dr. Jonathan Suravel. Thank you for listening. For more information about our university, visit us at study at apu.com. APU, American Public University.